This reading is from Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. It is uh, wonderful to be with you, and we are missing a a lot of people traveling and uh, visiting with family. Um, But I want to tell you, I'm thrilled to be here nonetheless, and I'm encouraged uh, to speak to you, whether it's one or 150 of you, because what I believe is that you're not here by accident, that God has called you, that He has appointed this time to speak with you, that He welcomes you, and that He wants to communicate with you personally. And so, as I pray and as we go through this time together, I want you to be listening What is it about this particular time that is more than just me monologuing? What is it about you being here that is particularly important and relevant to your life? What does God want to say to you this morning? So listen for that as we move into the new year. This is a a transitional time, and perhaps, and I believe it really is true, that God is wanting to speak to you personally. And so let's listen to Him together. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for all of those who are gathered here, those who are away, those who are visiting with us, with family, those who are visiting looking for a place to belong. I pray that you would minister your grace to us. And whatever we came here expecting this morning, whether we had high expectations, whether we had low or no expectations, Father, I pray that you would reach out to us. Reach out to us in our sorrow, in our pain, in our gladness, in our abundance, and let us see how you want to move in our lives and also move through us. And as we think about 2018, I pray that as a church, we would not only consider ourselves and our own needs and what we want out of the year, but we would consider what do you want to do through us? Who do you want to reach? Who do you want to touch? Whose burdens do you want to alleviate and lift through our hands? Father, make us cognizant of of these things. Make us aware, not only of the blessings that you've bestowed upon us, but on how you want to bless others. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Carl Rabiner was a, I'm sorry, Australian, Austrian businessman. And he amassed a wealth of $5 million and was making more and more each year. He was successful in every way, owned multiple houses, fast cars, and took five-star vacations. He inhabited the life that most of America would want to inhabit, and yet he was absolutely miserable. He says, for a long time, I believed that more wealth and luxury automatically meant more happiness. But over time, a conflicting feeling developed. More and more, I heard the word, stop what you are doing now, all this luxury, all this consumerism, and start your real life. I had the feeling I was working as a slave for things that I did not wish for or even really need. He says he had an epiphany on vacation to Hawaii. 
In three weeks, we spent all the money you could possibly spend. But in all that time, we had the feeling that we hadn't met a single real person. We were all just actors. The hotel staff played the role of being friendly. So the guest played the role of being important. But nobody was real. So he sells his villa in the Alps. He sells his farmhouse in France, his Audi R8. And he puts all his money into a charity he founded in Latin America. And he says, I feel light. For the first time ever, I feel free. This sort of thing feels and sounds crazy, doesn't it? I mean, at least keep the Audi of all things. At least keep something. We almost feel sorry for him, don't we? That he's giving up everything and he no longer has access to all this stuff. We feel sorry for him. Doesn't that tell us a lot? He's giving up everything. But from his perspective, it cost him nothing. His money had become a burden. His money had become an impediment to his joy. Real happiness cost him everything, and yet at the same time it cost him nothing. This chapter in Matthew, chapter 13, is known as the chapter of parables, and most of these parables are told to the crowds, but then Jesus backs away and he has this private audience with his disciples where he explains one of the parables that didn't make sense to them, and then he tells them a couple of more that are pretty difficult. And Jesus here is discussing what distinguishes true followers from those who have simply got caught up in the enthusiasm, simply those that have gotten caught up in the crowds and are following along. He distinguished between those who are searching for a new spiritual experience and something that is actually true. He's distinguishing true followers and those who use religion to control and manipulate others and use power to maintain maintain control over their own kingdoms. And what he's saying here in these parables is that true followers are those who recognize the ultimate worth of Jesus and his kingdom, and they see it worth sacrificing anything to have it. One of these men in the parables finds a treasure. Apparently, he's digging around in some other guy's yard, and he finds this thing. It's kind of odd-sounding, but there were no banks then. And so if you wanted to preserve something, if you had something valuable that you didn't use every day, you hid it. Often it was just below the ground. So maybe this sort of thing isn't that unusual. We don't know what kind of treasure the first man finds, but in the second one we're told that this person just stumbles upon, this merchant stumbles upon a pearl, something of great value, something of great beauty. Now, one is looking for it. One is searching, and he finds something. One just stumbles upon it. But both have an epiphany, like Carl Rabiner, an insight into the relative value of things, an insight into the worth of everything they own now is suddenly diminished. Everything that they thought in life was so valuable now becomes something that they can easily get rid of in order to have this new thing. 
the treasure, and the pearl, it cost them everything, but really it cost them nothing. Jesus is saying here over and over that the kingdom is like certain things. The kingdom is like someone going through life, and then suddenly they encounter something that changes everything, that changes the way that they see the world. What Christians celebrate in a couple of days on January 6th, the 12th day of Christmas, is Epiphany. And we celebrate in Epiphany the visitation of the Magi. Epiphany is saying that God is perfectly hidden and perfectly revealed in the very same place, and that God is shining forth in the most unlikely of places, in the, in the material world, and in a vulnerable place. Here in this child, God is not dangerous like all of the other gods of the ancient world, like every other one who is threatening punishments. But believe it or not, Epiphany tells us, Christmas tells us that God becomes a helpless baby and He enters into our midst. No other religion, no other philosophy talks about God like that. They, none of them put God in a compromised position. And these magi sense something from God. They have an epiphany that God can be found, that God is alive, that God is present, and He invites humanity to come and to meet Him. In fact, to in some way possess Him. For the Magi, and hopefully for us, life suddenly looks different. They drop everything, and they make a months-long journey to visit and pay homage to this new king. What the birth of Christ represented for them was worth having their lives turned upside down. It was worth far more than the status quo. It was worth more than their comfortable lives in their known worlds. The kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is like people discovering that God is not like the other gods of the known world that he's not fickle, that he's not remote, that he's not easily provoked to anger, that he's not bent towards punishment. But the kingdom of God is like stumbling upon God and discovering that he is good, discovering that he is something to be treasured, that he is loving, that he is gracious. And this discovery what Jesus is telling us, if we believe him, is far more valuable than anything that we now possess. So we gladly, joyfully even, give it up so that we can possess. Now there's a paradox here, as I've been alluding to in a couple of places, because on one hand, the kingdom, like an epiphany, is something that comes upon you. An epiphany is not an experience that we can generate. We can be open to it. We can be looking for it, but we can't create it on our own. It's something instead that we sort of encounter, that we receive. And often epiphanies feel like they break in, right? They invade us. 
They get into our heads. They force their way in. And that's actually the story of how grace moves throughout the Bible. Remember Abraham, where he hears the voice of God in this pagan land. He says, come and follow me. An epiphany, something he's not expecting. Moses hears God speaking from the burning bush, something completely unusual, completely unexpected. Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel and is told that she will be with child. Not something she's seeking, not something she's looking for. And in her situation, not something that she would want. Now there's a scandal in her life, but she has this epiphany that God is with her. The kingdom is breaking in. Paul on the road to Damascus, someone who's killing Christians, and their leader appears to him and forces his way into his life. It says, Paul, your life will never be the same. They weren't even looking for the kingdom. They weren't looking for an epiphany, and yet it came. Yet they encountered it. Epiphanies, especially those that come from God, leave us out of control, and they demand that we change. They demand that our lives will never be the same. You see, both men in this, par- in this parable encounter something so valuable that they liquidate everything they own. What does it cost them? On one hand, absolutely nothing. The kingdom comes. Epiphanies come upon us. The kingdom is simply given, as Jesus tells us earlier in this chapter. The kingdom, the treasure of Jesus' reign and rule in our lives is not something that can be earned. It's not something that can be given as a reward. It's given as grace. It's given freely. It costs nothing, but on the other hand, it costs us everything. Because you're asked to give up everything that you value, everything that is of ultimate worth to you. It lays claims upon your money. It lays claims upon your time. It lays claims upon your relationships. It lays claims upon your plans for the future and your purpose. And it lays claims upon your right to define God how you want to. Because you see you encounter something that is there. You encounter something that is real that exists before you. You don't define it, but it, He, the treasure, defines us and defines how life is going to be. You see, the kingdom, friends, is far better and far more free than we could possibly comprehend, but it's far more demanding than we could possibly expect. It's radically good news Because the everlasting life of Jesus is yours at no cost. It costs you nothing, but it costs Him everything. It's radically good news. But if we're wedded to our comforts, if we're tied to our stuff, it's radically bad news. Because it costs us everything. And we have to let go. And we have to open up our grip and our control over people and things and our stuff and anything that stands in the way of inhabiting that kingdom and allowing Jesus to inhabit ours. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the most significant people, not just pastors and theologians, but one of the most significant persons in the 20th century. He was a German pastor and theologian. He was publicly anti-Hitler and anti-Nazi. And he was teaching in New York City at Union Seminary when the Nazi regime began to rise to power and began its murderous campaign. And he told the administration, the people that had brought him here, I got to go back. I got to go back to Germany in the midst of the Nazi occupation and the death camps and the killing, indiscriminate killing. And he gives up this lucrative position, this prestigious position to put his life at risk because he knew that God was calling him back. So he goes back and he keeps writing. He starts an underground seminary. He speaks out against Hitler. And he's eventually killed for calling the church to oppose the Nazi regime. And in his most well-known book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says, when Christ calls someone, he calls him to die. When Christ calls someone, he calls them to die. Is that what Christianity feels like to you? If you've been a Christian for a while and you're going through life, does it feel sort of like death? At some level, death to these things that have a hold on you and that you want to keep a hold on? Have you ever felt tension in God asking you that you know that He's asking you to give up something and there's a tension there? That He's asking you to change the way that you've always done life? Is that what it feels like, at least from time to time, that you feel that tension? To be a Christian, the answer has to be yes. Because at some level, to enter into the kingdom to begin with, to be a Christian, you've said yes, at least theoretically, at least hypothetically, that, Jesus, I give you everything. I give up my rights to my own kingdom. I give up my rights to dictate my own life. At some level, that's got to be true for all of us who would say that we are Christians. We have to have felt that way at some point. And at least in principle, we'd understand that becoming a Christian says that he must increase while I decrease, that nothing is held back. But at the same time, this is the very thing that we will keep working on, that we'll continue to feel this, ten feel this tension as long as we live. The change of kingdom, you see, is a change of complete dimension. It's a complete change of dimension. It's a change of citizenship out of one kingdom and into another kingdom. And like choosing to move to a foreign country, you can't choose to do it halfway. You can choose, but you still have to move. You still have to learn how to live there. You see, you sell your car, you sell your belongings, you get on a plane, you pack up. There's a line that you cross. It's a very binary decision on one hand. There's a before and after you decided to be a citizen in another country. But it's only when you get there that the gravity begins to set in of the decision that you've actually made. And every day that you inhabit that new country, 
You're learning about that decision that you made with very little context. You're letting go and you're taking hold of something. And every day you're forced, in a sense, to reaffirm that decision that you made. And every day as you go about life in that new country, you're reflecting upon the significance of that decision that you made. And every day you stay is an affirmation of that choice that you made that you couldn't possibly understand before you got on the plane and you actually landed and began to do life. Coming to faith, coming to live in Jesus' kingdom, we are saying like these two men in this parable, I give to God everything, everything I know at this moment, everything in principle, everything I value is given over to Him and for use in His kingdom. I give Him control of every issue that I'm aware of right now. But experientially, as you understand more and more about the gospel, as you understand more and more about yourself, as you go through life in this new kingdom, you realize that the demands that were placed upon you in that vow you took were so much more radical than you could possibly have conceived. And you have to then begin to think more deeply, what do I now do with my money? What do I now do with my comfort, my leisure time, my image, my reputation, my privacy? Now, there's one that we really don't want to give up. What do I do now with my future? Every day, you see, is an affirmation or a denial or a series of both. Both of these men give up something very particular That is everything that they own physically, which represents to them life and security and happiness and rootedness. But you see, they don't do it sort of begrudgingly. They don't do it with a closed fist. They do it gladly and joyfully because what the kingdom represents to them, what this treasure, this pearl represents to them is so much more valuable than everything they're giving up. Now, I wonder, what would that mean for us as we close out this year, as we look individually, personally, communally into the new year? Is there something in your life that you're holding on to? Maybe it's lost its functional value, and at some level you're aware of that. At some level you know that it's not bringing you life and happiness anymore. Maybe it's harmful Maybe it's harmful to you or to your family or to the world that you live in, but you can't seem to let it go because it has taken root and you've habitualized its meaning and its power over you for so long. Maybe that's what God is putting His finger on in this new year. Maybe that's the thing that feels like everything but actually is worthless in light of what God is calling to you, calling you to. But we can't do that alone. We've got to talk about it. We need a community that can help us. And so I encourage you, if that's where God is putting His finger on you, how He's speaking to you personally, and I imagine that all of us have places in our lives, and so it's not just a few of us, I encourage you to bring that up in your community groups, or if you're a leader, bring it up in your group.
if you're not a part of a group, to become a part of one, that over time you can feel comfortable sharing these things about your life and getting help. Or maybe you're here this morning considering Christianity, but the image of God that you've always held in your mind is not compelling. It's not appealing. Maybe it's like the the far side God. Have you ever seen the God that Gary Larson draws, the big robes and the, the long flowing gray hair, and he always looks just a little bit perturbed with humanity. Why would we give up everything for that? Well, it's literally a cartoon image of God. But what if God was not like what we thought? What if God was, in fact, a treasure? What I've been sharing with you, this idea of giving up everything, and that's us, in order to have the treasure, that is, Jesus and His kingdom, is sort of the the standard interpretation of this passage. And it's a good one, and it's a correct one. We're to see ourselves in the two men who realize that everything they have is worthless compared to knowing and having and possessing the treasure. And the treasure is Jesus' kingdom. It's His reign and His rule and His peace and His goodness. Both those who are searching and those who are apathetic are invited to, to give up something they value in return for something that is far greater But you see, there's another way to see this parable, and I think is just as valuable and valid. And this is why Jesus' parables, you can read them over and over, because there's new layers. And the realm of meaning is not just a dot, but it's a big circle. That we are not the two people, the merchant or the person searching. We are not the men, but we're the treasure. And Jesus, you see, isn't the pearl and the treasure. Jesus is, in fact, the one searching. The treasure, then, is not the kingdom that is found by people, but it's people of extraordinary worth that are found by God. The worth of what has come to the finder is so great that he is happy. He is overjoyed to pay whatever cost it is required to acquire it. The sacrifice then is no real sacrifice at all. It's a joy. It's an unburdening. And Jesus tells us in Luke 12, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. You see, God doesn't give up His kingdom to us begrudgingly but he opens his hand. It pleases him to bestow upon you his treasure, this kingdom. Or as the writer of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And if you remember this image of the lost coin and the lost person, the lost sheep, the lost son, And it is in that circumstance that Jesus is going after. Jesus is the one pursuing. Why? Because He treasures. He treasures you. And so as we consider these questions, if we consider it outside of the kingdom, wondering if we can come in, wondering if we can give up everything to be a part, or if it's very acute, if it's one thing, we've already said yes to Jesus 
in theory, but there's this one thing that we're holding on to. Whatever it is, couldn't we trust that on the other side of that giving up, if Jesus gives up everything because you are the treasure, doesn't he want, wouldn't it be reasonable to assume that that thing that he is leading you to, even though it's unknown, is going to be worth it, is going to be good for you? And you're going to look back on it and see, why did I wait? Why did I not give up all of these things that seem to be so valuable? Would you think about that as we confess our faith and as we come to the table, as we move into this week? Let's pray. Father God, give us hope that we can change. And I pray that you would help us to change, to give up things. Not because if we don't, you'll be disappointed. Not because if we don't, you will cast down anger upon us, but because we believe that you are good and that your desires for us are good and that you treasure us. Father, help us. We have self-images that have been ravished by parents, by negative messages, by advertising, by things every day that tell us we are not worthy, we're not good enough, we're unlovely, we're broken, we're ugly. Father, help us to see that you look upon us and you treasure us, that you find us beautiful and valuable like that pearl in the parable. Help us to live out of that. In Jesus' name, amen.